Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Joe Burnett, the contributing editor at Sophie, and Ken Burnett, a trustee at Sophie, the showcase of fundraising, innovation, and inspiration. Joe, Ken, thank you both so much for taking the time today. Thank, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Steve. Likewise. Uh, Joe, you reached out to help me learn a little bit more about Sophie. I had not been following your work until just recently, so um, was very excited to begin understanding more about what you're doing, how it helps people in the charitable sector do their work better. But can for people that also maybe not familiar with it yet, can you just explain a little bit about what Sophie.org is, what you do there? Of course. Sophie was founded in 2010, and it's Function is essentially as an online museum of fundraising, of the best fundraising practice, and sometimes for educational purposes, the worst fundraising practice. <laughs> um, so we are 24-7 online platform, free to access, and we can cover pretty much the last two or 3,000 years of fundraising um, <laughs> from all around the world. So I think our oldest case study is from 1,500 BC, and the most recent one, obviously, is from 2020. And it's, we've got case studies and examples of fundraising campaigns from the Americas, from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, all around the world. So we're a truly online, uh, global world um, platform of fundraising excellence. And you helped create, Sophie, uh, as somebody who's worked in the field for many years, can you talk a little bit about the idea of wh why did you want to start sharing all of this information uh, in this online platform and, and help other people find it? Sure. Well, I, I was um, some years ago uh, traveling to Australia to visit uh, an agency that I worked with there, uh, and um, I had just been... Uh, taken to lunch by an organization uh, called Book Aid International, and they had started a, a new and very innovative form of fundraising, and they were, it was very successful for them. And their chief executive took me to lunch to say thank you. And I had to confess to him during the lunch that actually I had borrowed the idea. It wasn't my original idea. I'd actually borrowed it from the American Bible Society. Hmm. And this rather surprised him, but it didn't diminish his enthusiasm for me at all. And I said, you know, this is the great thing about fundraising is that there are so many creative ideas around, but, but really why trouble to think of a, of a good new idea if you can borrow someone else's? And so often we're, we're faced with reinventing the wheel. Uh, and when I was telling my wife this story, uh, she said, why, why don't we start a an online museum of fundraising excellence. And as, as Joe has said, it's, uh, it's kind of grown from that very simple idea into a huge reservoir of, we've, we've got the, on Sophie, uh, free 24 seven, we've got the best uh, case histories, hundreds of examples of direct mail packs and events and um, major donor initiatives and uh, you know any kind of fundraising that you name it's all categorized uh, uh, on the Sophie and and really it's a it's an endless supply and quickly we evolved from this to uh, put it in well we, we've actually um, Sophie is, is parts of it have already been translated into Spanish Joe you might have to help me here Portuguese <laughs> Spanish, Portuguese. yeah Chinese, Chinese Spanish 
yeah, Chinese, Spanish, Italian, German. Italian. So, so there's a lot of international content uh, on it, but also it it moved from being historical examples to um, to cover a kind of toolkit for fundraisers in terms of how to do what they do properly. So there's, I think, something nearly a thousand case histories on Sophie, but there are also how-to articles and features and a whole load of relevant content. And, and the whole purpose of it is to help fundraisers in medium to small organizations, particularly who don't necessarily have the chance to go to so many of the big conferences or, um, you know, they don't have big organizational training budgets and things right. like that. So for sole fundraisers, it's a great resource they can just dip into as they want. And, um, uh, and, and it's expanding all, all the time. What Ken says there is is a very a key point in that when um, when I think of Sophie, uh, I think of I try to put myself kind of in the shoes of a fundraiser, a junior fundraiser who's just started their first job in an organization and doesn't really know where to start. Um, and so Sophie is there as that starting point so that that person can sit down in front of their computer and look at the essential parts of Sophie and find pretty much everything they need to know to get their feet under the door. And it can be quite a difficult profession fundraising because mm -hmm. we're often underappreciated um, and often seen in a negative light or just, just think people think, well, you should just be doing this job for free or something. <laughs> and so I have an unofficial motto for Sophie, which is that no fundraiser should ever feel alone. And that's what Sophie is for. Well, I think those are laudable goals, and I think it is very challenging for many people in the fundraising field. Uh, here in the States, the a number of people that turn over in those types of jobs, you know, tends to be a 12 to 18 month um, stay in the those entry level, um, newer types of positions, I think largely because there may be unrealistic expectations within the non fundraising staff of what a single or, or maybe one or two fundraisers is able to accomplish within a 12 month period. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you haven't gotten it done in the first year, then, you know, perhaps there's a, an unrealistic expectation of, well, gosh, you should have done more. But these things you know, often take time, but perhaps not always. And, and I think that this is what's interesting to me about um, this wide range of studies that you have is certainly there are best practice sorts of ideas. Uh, you know, we, we tend to do those postal mailings in the United States in December, as we're getting close to people making um, gifts based more on uh, tax deductible impacts for the coming year than it may necessarily be on just the value of the, the charitable work. But that's why those things happen there. That's an understood time frame, and it becomes sort of a, a practice that most people do. If you're new, you may not know that. But if you've been around for a while, postal mail tends to go out in that month, certainly other times too. We understand that one. However, that said, there's always an evolution of new ways to engage an audience, new ways to talk about why your charitable mission is the important thing uh, to gain some attention and support. Uh, and here's where uh, we, we sort of got in contact about this idea of uh, fundraisers seeing somebody else's new idea and uh, not to steal the thunder, Joe, I'll ask you to kind of talk about an upcoming event uh, and how it is titled. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Uh, the event is I Wish I'd Thought of That, uh, or Iwitot for short. <laughs> uh, we've been running Iwitot since uh, 2012. 
they previously were live events, obviously, with the current situation, that's no longer possible. So we've moved virtual. But in the past, we had taken them around the world. So there have been Iwitots, not just in London, but also in Toronto, Baltimore, Australia. Um, there have been variations of it in France and other places. And of course, to the International Fundraising Conference in the Netherlands. So there's a big, uh, so it's already been an existing thing. Um, and this year it moved online and we had the very first Iwitot 2020, which was vir completely virtual. And the idea behind Iwitot is that a selection of fundraisers, 10, 12, 20, depending on, on, on who's available, um, it, they get together and they have seven minutes um, each to present a fundraising idea that they wish they'd thought of. So, and then the audience in a sort of X Factor style, um, but better, uh, sort of votes on their favourites. And the key point is that each fundraiser in their seven minutes, it can't be a fundraising idea that they worked on or that their organisation worked on. It has to be somebody else's idea and they get to celebrate it. And the upcoming event now, which is on the 26th of January, is Iwitot Americas. So it's a special virtual edition so it's focused on the great fundraising that's happening uh, on your neck of, in your neck of the woods, um, North and South America. So I believe, Joe, all the speakers are yes. either based in America or from uh, or from from different parts of Americas. And I think there's a very diverse range of case histories that they will be presenting. Absolutely. It, sorry, the 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 major excitement that comes from these events is that suddenly, first of all, a seven minute presentation <laughs> be quite quick fire. And so people right. don't have time to get bored and they're getting a new idea thrown at them. And some of the ideas are very colorful or they're very dramatic and they're quite exciting and, and people love it. And so as Joe was saying about the, the acronym IWITOT, I wish I'd thought of that has become like a new word in the fundraisers dictionary. Uh, you know, and if people refer to Iwitots as if it's to the process of creating a new idea. And, uh, and that kind of momentum that these events have built up is, is very encouraging to see. So as Joe said, we've, we've run this event initially in London and it's always been a sellout uh, conference people um, stand at the back and queue and sit in the aisles and things like that. And, and it's, it, it's very, very exciting. But when it went virtual, we thought this was a potentially a, a disaster because, you know, we'd always had two or 300 people at the main event. Uh, and now suddenly, you know, would we attract that? And, and actually what we got instead of 250, 300 people in London, was we had people from all around the world. Joe, remind me some of the countries that we... Yeah, so we had 800 attendees um, and they were from places as far away as Canada and the US, but also Israel, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, we had Hungary, um, Italy. It was very, it was very, very much global. And that was very exciting. I think we had Chile as well, which was quite exciting. And just to follow on what Ken was just saying there in terms of um, the speakers for the upcoming event, we've also gone as, you know, gone for a really diverse uh, lineup. So we have speakers from Canada and the USA, but also Mexico and Brazil. So it's, it's, it was a 
it's an amazing event in that respect because it's now virtual people can tune in from anywhere and there is no seating limit right <laughs> it, it, it it i hear what ken is saying because i do think that there's a little bit of a a different feel to an event when you're in a space with colleagues uh, that the the energy of the room i think adds something but the world being what it is today we have to work within the constrictions that we have and maybe we learn some new things we're forced to innovate a little bit to find out in what circumstances can we share this information quickly and easily with lots of folks that may not be able to attend in person had it been that way and take advantage of it i i hope that you know by the time you start thinking about uh, the next one for the Americas, there there will be an opportunity to have an in-person component for those that choose and are able, and then maybe some other way of sharing as well. But the idea of having somebody who works in the field who is constantly trying to uh, understand what are the opportunities, where are the, the, the ways that we can do our work better, to see those uh, colleagues succeeding and go, oh, I wish I had thought of that, but not necessarily like, well, that doesn't mean I can't learn from or maybe even do exactly what these folks are talking about. Um, I, I did want to ask you a little bit about um, sort of a more famous example of, of uh, the, the runaway success model of the ice bucket challenge some years ago now, uh, seven, eight years, I can't remember exactly how long ago it was. Um, but this was a, uh, a really first mega successful uh, idea in fundraising where most of the work was really being done through um, social sharing by other people's networks and not so much, we've structured a campaign, we have these goals and limits, we're doing these things, us, 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 charity, charity, charity but rather turning it over to a, a crowd to create this kind of energy. Um, amazingly successful, $100 million plus dollars in raise, and then everyone else turns to every other fundraiser and says, why didn't you think of that? How come you haven't done that here? Uh, and that's got to be something that comes up in these types of conversations when you have the next innovation, the next cool idea that somebody says, I wish I'd thought of that. Um, but that pressure of, well, can't you do it right now? Can't you replicate that thing that they did? And I don't know that it's always so easy to just flip a switch and do exactly what your colleague has just done. So as people hear about that, how do they think about, well, now that I've heard that idea and I've seen how it was implemented, how do I you know, decide, can I do something like that? How do I maybe learn from it and change it? Well, I think the key often for the fundraiser is to look at what somebody else has done and to think about adapting it rather than just adopting it. So they have to make it fit in their context. But you mentioned the ice bucket challenge, which is, is absolutely um, priceless because it was so widely um, copied and, and, and so effectively too. I mean, maybe we should think of a, a future event called, why didn't you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard so many boards of trustees saying very similar things, often about the ice bucket challenge. But I mean, we, we have one of the great exhibits, which is on Sophie, which is very regularly visited, is a, um, a mailing which uses a small, small plastic pen. And it was developed by Amnesty International some years ago. And, and it told a story, it was a very harrowing story of a, a, a a young boy who'd been tortured uh, and the pen, a pen had been used as an instrument of torture actually mm. to, to blind the boy. And, um, and the message from 
amnesty was that you can use this pen as an instrument of torture, or you can use it to sign up and join amnesty. So it can be an instrument of torture or it can be something that will change the world. And that idea literally launched a thousand copycats, often from organizations who didn't have such a good connection with the pen, but they were all in the UK particularly, but in other countries too, they were all sending out examples of mailers with little plastic pens attached. Um, and so, some, so I think there is a skill that the fundraiser has to learn, which is to adapt appropriately and make sure that the innovation copied from somebody else actually works in your constituency with your followers. And, and sometimes it's actually possible to take an idea and embellish it to add to it, mm -hmm. make it work more, more effectively. And the great thing, uh, I've been a judge for in direct marketing awards in the British Direct Marketing Association many, many years ago. And, and always the fundraising sector is the one that everybody wants to judge because right. they'll see the best creativity there because we have the best causes in the world. Uh, we've got the best stories to tell and we've got the best reasons for telling them. And fundraisers over the years have learned to tell their stories with power and passion to move people to action. And, and that is a great soup from which creativity flows. And, uh, and this can be quite, uh, quite fantastic. And, and so the, the momentum in these events called I Wish I'd Thought of That, it builds up and you see, you know, so it's not just really about the individual exhibits and you might go away with one or two ideas that you think you can implement in your organization, but it's a kind of collective feeling that, that grows in fundraisers. So, I mean, Joe, you'll have lots of examples of the feedback that you get from individual fundraisers saying, this has changed my life. Absolutely. It, I think it, it is a particularly the atmosphere because it's, it, because it's fundraisers um, praising other fundraisers, it kind of boosts the morale. It, uh, and already people are happy when they come in. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that everyone comes into a new resort depressed and comes out happy, <laughs> but they, they, they're sort of, because that <laughs> they have, you know, there's an enthusiasm of this. We're actually just celebrating our, our profession and the, the good it does and the transformative ability of different campaigns um, for beneficiaries and for donors and for fundraisers themselves. So I think it just helps people. It, 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 there's a certain energy at an Iwi Tot that is, I, I remember one year, the first year I worked on an Iwi Tot, um, the winner was a, a young man who had um, who had auditioned to appear at Iwitot, and we had had, had a mentor um, to talk him through presenting. He'd never presented before, and he chose as his campaign that he wished he'd thought of um, an elderly woman, ninety-two, uh, in the north of England, who every day or every week dresses as a bee, and um, goes and asks for donations for. Um, uh, for a charity, a local charity up, up in her city. And, you know, the young man who, who gave the presentation, he wasn't going to take that idea and, and, and repurpose it because, you know, there is something particularly special about a 92-year-old great-grandmother <laughs> doing it. But 
it won anyway because it was such a lovely idea and she was such a character and there was a video of her and and he was so sort of just thrilled to be there and to be sharing this this this, this story which as Ken said you know we have the greatest stories and some of them are very simple some of them it's a 93 year old um, great-grandmother in Hull in 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 Yorkshire and that just that story in and of itself was enough for him to win the to win the event conversely this year we had uh when we did our first virtual one um we had a speaker who presented um the case study of a a, a small farm uh, well a small zoo I should say sorry in uh, northern California that because of the pandemic had had to shut but it needed to do some fundraising in order to be able to reopen when uh, when all the when, when it was safe to do so and they came up with this brilliant idea which was that in in exchange for a donation you could get a goat uh, to appear on your zoom meetings <laughs> and we <we're> all <laughs> So you'd, I would so you'd, pay for that. Exactly. So you'd have, you know, we're, we've all been doing all these Zoom meetings and there's 19 people on the screen. And then just in the top right, there's a little goat just looking in and saying hello. And that idea um, sadly didn't win. It got my vote. But anyway, <laughs> um, but somebody who was attending from a British charity called Marie Curie or Marie Curie uh, cancer, uh, cancer charity thought that's brilliant. And they came up with a, they partnered with a farm of alpacas in Scotland. And basically in exchange for donations, um, people could take a, an alpaca on their next virtual meetup. Um, and so they, and so if you could go, if you were going on a date and you decide, had to do it through Zoom because of social distancing, it could be you and your date and an alpaca. And the money then went to, to, to Marie Curie and it's just and that was just as Ken said that was taking an idea that had worked in California with this rather funny idea of having goats on zoom meetings and uh, tweaking it so that it matched so that it fed the needs of a different charity and, um, and I mean who wouldn't want an alpaca on a date um, uh, so <laughs> Sounds a bit suspect to me, but maybe I'm <laughs> Yeah, you're not modern enough, Ken. But that is a, a great example, though, of this idea of, uh, of being innovative in fundraising isn't necessarily just do, can we tell the story slightly differently about you know the the needs in our community, the the value of the charity and whatnot. Sometimes it really needs to um, be that that incubator space where people can say, in this moment in time. Uh, our constituency needs something from us besides just a good cause to give to, right? Um, there's a lot of good causes. This is, of course, one of the challenges in the uh, fundraising sector. There are many, many opportunities for people to make an impact in their community. How do they uh, reach their audiences? How do they kind of cut through the noise and be heard of their thing? And sometimes I think uh, it's okay for the fundraiser to say, well, what, what does that constituency need from us right now? And if you're stuck on Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, Meeting, you, you need a little levity or a little break or a little something to help change your life some. And if that means that the organization introduces itself to you and you get a little bit of money for it, then that's wonderful opportunity. I think the challenge sometimes with these innovative things is then when do you know that that was a one-time thing that functioned in a moment in time that maybe either brought in some money or didn't are we going to have a continuing relationship with that donor or is that donor really just like, you know what, you were cute around this one thing and I need to, you know, recognize 
this opportunity was just that thing. It is only about raising money. It's not about relationship building where a lot of fundraising is about relationship building. But how do you help people talk that through? And it seems like your format gives them the chance to examine, can we build from this or is this something that we do once and move forward? Yeah, I I, I think that that's good. It, very definitely, this is not a, a, a backward looking, this is a historical mm -hmm. celebration. It is actually, I think it's about it's about recycling. It's about recycling ideas from our past or from, you know, I hope mostly, as Joe has said, from the recent past, but even going way, way back, thousands of years recycling ideas because they then can become the big ideas of our present and even be the big ideas of our future. So it's a kind of um, repurposing and, and uh, uh, reusing of ideas as well as a, uh, as a celebration of ideas. And of course, you know, creativity is, is about sparking off ideas off other people. And so you, you it becomes a, um, a, 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 there's a, there's a kind of an explosion of creativity because one thing sets off another thing and then new ideas come. And it's all about you know, the, at the core of fundraising, good fundraising is about communicating. I believe it's the inspiration business. You know, we are, mm -hmm. that's what Sophie stands for. Right. It's innovation and inspiration. And once you get that creativity into your system, it becomes self-fulfilling. And, um, and of course, people love it. It gives a richness to their uh, career. There's nothing quite like standing up in front of an audience and uh, talking about something that has inspired you and then seeing somebody else pick that up and take it on. That, that is quite fantastic. But he, the only thing that's better than that, I think, is sitting in the audience and hearing that somebody's picked up a campaign that you had originated mm. and they're telling their peers about it because they think this is something you should know about. That is quite... Fantastic. Uh, and so I, I do hope, Joe, have we given out the, the times and the details and how people mm. get a hold of, uh, because there's a, well, as you say, virtually there's no limit on the number of places, but you don't yeah. need to get your skates on because right. we're only about nine days away, I think. As we record this, right. It's uh, very coming, coming up very quickly. Right. Yes, it's on Tuesday, the 26th of January. So yes, that's coming. That's a week, yeah, a week away, a week and a couple of days. Um, and it's between 11 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. EST. Uh, so yeah, it's it's coming up fast. So we will have links in the show notes for people that are listening that if you've got this on your phone, just click the link. It'll take you directly to where you can learn more and register uh, so that you can be a participant in this coming America's event, uh, learn more about who's presenting as, as we just heard a little bit ago, uh, quite the range of presenters already lined up for um, this particular opportunity. Uh, and I think that's exciting to do in this time when we feel particularly disconnected from our peers. Uh, I personally was just at a virtual event uh, a little bit ago that I would normally have done in person in past years, but uh, it is what it is. And um, that event wasn't 
um, I think as, as designed to connect the audience as much as it was to broadcast information. And I think that that's a, a challenge that we do all still face both as fundraisers, but just as professionals working in, in the social good sector, that maybe we had more often seen our colleagues in person in this last, you know, almost year now, um, but much, much less frequently now do we get to connect with them. Uh, so as people are watching, is there a way for Q&A or a, a way to share or some other way to kind of connect through about these stories? Or, or how does one envision doing that maybe after the event? There is a Q&A during the, so um, participants can ask questions to the speakers. Um, okay. There was uh, the last one we did in uh, back in April. Um, there was a, uh, after each um, talk, which was pre-recorded, uh, we then had a Q&A with the different speakers. I was co-hosting with, uh, with a, a friend called Camille. Um, we, um, we would ask various questions of the speakers. So on top of the uh, seven minute presentation time, each speaker has about 15 minutes of, um, of time uh, in total, nice. which includes a chat. Uh, so yeah, there is, and, and there's always a, um, a chat area so that the different people attending can talk to each other. And then there are questions that are also asked in the chat um, to to the speakers, and those are taken out. There's a whole team behind the back, uh, behind the behind the scenes filtering the questions out. So these ones are to be asked to the speakers, and the, and then also the people can carry on chatting and saying hello to one another, um, and and catching up really. Joe, Joe, you mentioned the hosts. There uh -huh. are two hosts. I I know that one of them is the legendary Lisa Sargent. Yes, who is um, based in um, Connecticut, uh, and Lisa is just one of the most brilliant writers in the not-for-profit space that I have mm -hmm. ever come across. She's she's absolutely superb. She's an, a wonderful, bubbly person, and I think she will be a great host. But I'm not familiar with the second host, Joe. Can you remind me who? Her name is Sahalo. Wahid, and she is the founder of Giving Geeks in Austin, Texas. Giving like Geeks, I mean, that's the kind of innovation that you like to be hearing about just by the name, right? That this yeah. is probably something that didn't exist 15 years ago of the ability of organizations to provide something other than just cash. And I'm going to guess by the name, I don't know the organization, that, um, that it's not just a bunch of people working in technology who just give money, but presumably some expertise, some advice, you know, these sorts of things in addition to whatever financial resources. And I think that's the evolution of what bringing resources into making a better world looks like these days, where um, <clears throat> it would certainly be nice if people would just write us extremely large checks. Yep. That would be great. We'll go out and go do um, great work with it and, and accomplish wonderful things for our, our fellow people. But I also think that there's this opportunity to talk about fundraising in a different way of what does it mean to raise resources, some of which may be now more uh, contributions of networks, uh, of people bringing their teams to things to um, become involved in a mission. Uh, sometimes the direct contribution of skill where uh, programmers will do sprints and, and give people these sorts of things. Th these are, are tools that were not as widely used, you know, maybe even as late as when you started this, Ken. I mean, even in 2010, um, there's been much more collaborative ways of expressing support for charitable missions besides just the, um, the we, we received a large gift from a large donor, um, but rather there's lots of ways to think about how we support this work. 
Yeah, absolutely, Steve. I, I, I am so pleased that you've referenced this, um, the, the, the giving of money, because very often just the word fundraising, I think, works against us because right. people think it's all about the money. But of course, money is is not the end in itself. It's maybe the means to an end, but it is certainly not the end in itself. And people don't give us money for things to stay the same. They always give us money to make a change. And that has to be something that they've been inspired to, to, to believe in. So I think we can't really separate the campaigning action from the fundraising. If we try to do that, then people are effectively being asked just to give us money maybe they'll give us money to go away but uh, you know and people will cross the street to avoid a fundraiser we need to change that and i think the the, the way we do that is by inspiring people to believe in the causes and the issues that we are so passionate about and, and that again is a communicable thing that people believe Urban, and you're not going to succeed as a fundraiser if you don't passionately believe in your cause. You have right. to believe in it as much as your donors do. So, so I I refer to campaigning fundraisers all the time. I think it's uh, uh, I think it's it's one of the things that we have to overcome is the tendency for um, people to believe that it's just about giving money or it's just about asking people for money. So many boards misunderstand what's really involved in fundraising and again that is part of I think the Sophie message where there's a lot about educating your trustees there's a lot about governance there's a lot about um, uh, involving people at different levels so it, it's not just you know it, if it was just asking for money there would there would not be nearly so much creativity around we, we are very right. lucky to work in this this fabulous space where you can actually change the world, do good while while enjoying fantastic creative opportunities and so on, which is why it's such a good career. And I would love to be able, Steve, to do something about that very uh, alarming issue that you mentioned, which is the short tenure, the, the, the lifespan of the average young fundraiser right. coming in. Uh, we've got, I think, a very rich and colourful hinterland of, uh, Joe, it might be worth talking about some of the, the campaigns. I had been a fundraiser for more than half of my career before I realised but it wasn't my generation. I thought we'd invented direct mail <laughs> and all of those things, you know, because I'd just come in and we were doing all these new things and and, you know, we were um, recruiting donors and 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 then you know I think almost by accident I uh, well a guy called Mal Warwick in Berkeley California sent me a letter from uh, which had been written by a Japanese monk in 1235 um, and it was a brilliant piece of communication absolutely uh, and uh, and uh, you know and I, I thought if I had known this at the start of my career uh, I could have copied some of the great ideas that were in this letter. And and then, um, Joe, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the, what the Romans got up to and Moses. Well, yes. Um, I mean, Pliny the Younger was probably created the first ever matching fund appeal <laughs> uh, in 100 AD. Um, so, 
you know, that's that's a long, long time ago. But he offered to donate a third of his uh, sorry, to provide a third of the funds towards getting some teachers um, stationed in Como in Italy. Um, and he appealed to his fellow senators uh, from the Roman Senate to uh, said, if you give a, a certain amount, I will give a third of that myself, because it's important for the young people of Como to have teachers that were in their town, because before they were having to travel to Milan um, to get educated. So it was, so that's, you know, nearly two, well, 2000 years ago almost. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, you mentioned um, giving more than just money. Well, it would go back to the Bible. Um, and in the Bible, Moses has a campaign to help build a tabernacle, which is, can, it's a sort of wandering tent. It's a big mobile, tent. It's a mobile church. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, this was when the, the children of Israel were walking, were, Wandering 40 in the years desert. in the desert. 40, 40 years, years in the desert. desert. That's right. the story. And, uh, well, they... they. So he appealed, because the you know, the carrot at the end of the stick was that it would get them closer to God and it would be a godly thing to do. Um, so therefore, there was a benefit to them as donors, but they were donating their time rather than money so that they could put together, you know, weave the necessary fabrics and um, trim the goats for the, for the fur to make... Mm -hmm you know the bits and pieces and you know work the land so that they could build this mobile um church and you know that's what was it 1500 bc that's right so so three three thousand five hundred years ago but the significance of that particular campaign is that people gave jewelry and they gave clothing uh, you're right it wasn't it wasn't cash right. I mean, they didn't have a, 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 um eft and things like that <laughs> <laughs> but but they, but it was so successful that actually, at the end of, uh, at the end of the campaign, Moses had to tell his followers that they'd raised more money than they needed, and he had to give back gifts to people. And all of this is documented, actually, in the in the Torah, in the mm -hmm. the, the, the Old Testament of um, uh, the Jewish religion, which formed the basis of the Christian Bible, mm -hmm. uh, and and. And this, you know, I, when we started with Sophie, we started finding out these things. And suddenly we began to realize that there's a whole load of things. The, the first major donor dinner was held around, the, well, about 500 years later, King David had a fundraising event for uh, his son to build a temple in the memory of his son Solomon. And uh, apparently raised the equivalent of Four hundred million dollars <laughs> in one night around a dinner table. Now that's not a bad uh, major donor dinner. So you know, again, I, I mean, I know it's a bit tongue in cheek to say I thought my generation had invented all these things, but actually, what that is is a rich history. Um, and if you study that, then you you know, I, I've always believed if you don't know where you've been it's really quite unlikely that you'll know where you are and you certainly won't know where you're going. And um, so, you know, really knowing our history uh, is very, very rewarding and very fulfilling, particularly if you look at the kind of fundraising that was going on around the Victorian times uh, and in the early part of the 20th century, there, there were really some quite fantastic things going on in fundraising. So sometimes at an Iwitot event, 
you'll get sort of eight really quite current and recent or even quite futuristic type campaigns. But then you'll get somebody will choose something that goes way back. And suddenly you realize, you know, we were all faced with the same problems. It's all about people to people, you know, people give to people. And it's all about illustrating, telling the stories with power and passion and all of those things. That's what makes successful fundraising. And that's what makes people feel so, feel so good. The more you know about what's gone on, the more I think you're likely to stay right. in this in this career career area. So again, and we're, is a bit of a celebration of fundraising excellence. And uh, we're we're running out of time, which is wow. right. I know we we start these conversations where oh we got all kinds of time to talk about this, but we, we just have a couple started. minutes left yeah, because there's go. there's a rich history, but there's also this this um, I think moment and imperative right now of thinking of how can we. Uh, adapt those ideas that we haven't looked at for a little while? How, how can we learn from our peers about what else is going on? Because I do think that it's uh, challenging for money organizations to think how they can move forward uh, in in a time of pandemic, which, you know, for some of us, this is the first pandemic, well, for most of us, first global pandemic of our lifetime, but it's not the first time there has been a global pandemic. Um, there, uh, I think it's interesting to think of how do people express what they need to talk about in times when there's other challenges like that and learn and look. So uh, uh, as we get ready to, to um, close this, I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about um, where this work continues in the future, because we do hope at some point as vaccinations are beginning across the world and all the rest of it, you know, we, we will be doing things differently again uh, in the future. Uh, once this current uh, event is completed, where does the work of Sophie continue? How do you see this evolving? Well, well, one of the things that's been quite staggering for us is that in the course of last year, um, in May and November, we we produced a, a series of, we, we produced two very detailed articles um, looking at fundraising results in the time of a pandemic, six months apart. And, um, you know, as you and Steve, I'm sure everybody across the world at the around the February, March time of last year, we were all prophesying dire times for fundraisers and wringing hands right. and in, in, in Britain, in the UK, hundreds of thousands of fundraisers were put on furlough by their employers, um, you know, and basically sent home uh, to ride out the coronavirus and campaigns were canceled and so on. And lots of negative views but actually what we found when we did and we, we went around the world we, we contacted people all over the place Australia, new zealand canada usa around and those organizations that had been stewarding their donorship their donors looking after their donors and showed that they cared about their donors and showed concern um they were getting results better than Christmas time mm. uh, and we found this in May and then six months later we went back and if, if anything it was even better and of course the reason for this was that although a lot so many people have been ill and suffered during this terrible time most people have been kept at home locked up many of them for much of their lives 
not able to spend money on many things, but hugely concerned about everything right. else that's going around in the world. And so people were responding to well-presented, well-structured and well-targeted appeals. They were responding better than ever because they wanted to help and they had money. The best example I can quote of this, which is one of the finest fundraising stories out of the last year was, we have a guy in Britain who's called Captain Tom. He's 99 years old and he set out to, I don't know if you know the story, Steve, but I'm no. sure some of your listeners won't. He's, a hun he's 100 now. He's now, <laughs> now 100. Yeah, but he, his, his objective was to raise a thousand pounds by walking around his garden for the, the British National Health Service. Mm. Now this story went viral and Captain Tom did indeed walk around his garden, but instead of raising a thousand pounds, he raised 33 million pounds. Oh my heavens. And he, he did this from 1.5 million individuals who just thought, I mean, all donors love a hero and we've got some great hero stories on Sophie. Um, but Captain Tom at 99 was a hero. He was a rather charming and lovely gentleman. People um, threw money at him. They were so impressed. And, and so I think, you know, and this was all in an environment where just a few weeks earlier, people had been wringing their hands, laying off their staff, right. talking about, you know, there were headlines in the press about how bad things were going to be for fundraisers. And yes, of course, lots of things have suffered in the in the pandemic, but giving from individual donors has thrived if you deliver a good donor experience. And so much more to talk about, about what the future may hold, how to do the rest. People, um, well, again, we'll have links in the, web, uh, in the show notes here to just learn more about Sophie, but of course, to register for the event for January 26th, to um, participate in this, uh, the America's version of the I Wish I Had Thought of That uh, event. So uh, I'm afraid we are now kind of out of time. So I just want to make sure to uh, thank Joe Burnett, the contributing editor at Sophie.org, and Ken Burnett, a trustee and co-founder. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank, thank you for having Steve. us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.